Galatians chapter 6, if you want to uh, turn there now. And just to briefly catch you up on the setting of what we're going to be going over today, chapter 6 is right on the heels of Paul talking about walking in the Spirit, and he contrasts that with walking in the flesh. And here in chapter 6, he's giving some greater explanation of what he means to walk in the Spirit. Some very practical ways that we can walk by the Spirit and live according to the law of Christ, which is a law of love. That is, we've been set free from being slaves to sin. We're not bound by anyone anymore, any longer. We're bound by the love for Christ. We ever increasingly strive to live according to the law of Christ. This means, as we saw last week, that we will bear one another's burdens. We will restore brothers who have stumbled. And we will examine ourselves and mortify our own sin. And today in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Paul continues to exhort the Galatians in practical matters concerning the flesh and the spirit. He says, living by the spirit means that you will have a mutual beneficence and generosity towards one another. We will have a spirit of doing good and generosity towards one another. And had I known when I picked chapter 6, just to do chapter 6 because I had three weeks to preach, I picked it because it broke up into three sections. And had I known that this section was on giving, I probably wouldn't have picked this chapter. So I unwittingly picked this passage, but the Lord intended it for our mutual good. So, Paul, according to these verses, chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, Paul wants the Galatians to walk by the Spirit in the law of Christ, and so he tells them, and these are the three points for your outline, share your goods with teachers, keep your eyes on the prize, and prefer your family of the faith. Share your goods with teachers, keep your eyes on the prize, and prefer your family of the faith. And if you're in Galatians 6 there, let's read verses 6 through 8. Paul says, let one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So the imperative in these verses, the command from Paul is to share. And this is the common Greek word, you probably heard this, koinonia, or the verb koinoneo, which means fellowship, partnership. But the verb simply means to share, to have a share, give a share, contribute a share, take part in a share. It's used throughout Scripture to refer to spiritual and material giving and receiving. And the verb, even at times, has a financial nuance. Take your Bibles and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just one book back, just a few pages back to the left. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is an obvious place where Paul is talking about material gifts. He is uh, exhorting the church in Corinth to give to him as he's going to take a gift back to Jerusalem. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 
verses 1 to 4, he tells the Corinthians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part, that's that same verb, or same word, taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul's writing to Corinth and he's about to exhort them to take part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. But before he does, he sets up this request of his with the example of the Macedonians who begged Paul to allow them to take part in relief of the saints, to send money. They begged him to carry their money to Jerusalem. In Romans 15.26, Paul again mentions the Macedonians and he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to pay some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That word contribution there, same word. It refers to what they shared with the poor, gave to the poor. This was the financial gift that Paul was carrying halfway across the world. And in Romans 12, 13, Paul commanded the Romans contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's the same word there, contribute to the needs of the saints. But in this passage, in Romans 12, 13, it's a different form. It's actually a present participle, meaning continually contribute to the saints. That was his command to them. This requires one to use possessions, money. And many take this as strictly referring to material needs or contributing money. I'm not going to restrict it to that, but you certainly can't remove the material aspect of meeting the needs of the saints. One more passage where this verb is used. Turn to Philippians 4.15. Paul used this verb in Philippians 4.15 with very similar language as he did with the Galatians, talking about sharing, giving and taking, partnering in the gospel by giving and receiving. Philippians 4.15, Paul says this, And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, that's that same word, with me in giving and receiving except you only. And the translation of this passage of the word partnership helps us to understand Galatians a little bit better. Because we ought to think of the passage in Galatians as a partnership in giving and receiving. So if you want to take your Bibles, go back to Galatians 6. Paul commands them, he says, share all good things. All good things is an adjective that pertains to meeting a relatively high quality or standard of something. Refers to possessions or treasures in this case. It's goods that you treasure, valuables. And he says, share all good things. It refers to the category of all of your stuff. It doesn't mean that you have to give everything away, but it means that you share even your most treasured valuables if there is the need. Today, in our economy, our most valuable possession is money. Back then, they traded goods back and forth in their economy. Today, we don't do that. 
Today, our most treasured, valuable possession is the money sitting in our bank account because we can buy anything with it. But sharing all goods means that you cannot withhold money just because you give other stuff, other possessions, time, energy, talents. So Paul says to share all good things, not necessarily give all your stuff away, but there's nothing off limits in your giving. Across every category of your possessions, you share with the saints. But who is to do this sharing? Well, Paul says, the other parties mentioned in the text are the one who teaches and the one who is taught the word. Paul indicates grammatically that it is the one who is taught the word that is to share. But this is where the translation in Philippians of partnership is helpful because Paul's not asking them to give their stuff away for nothing. This is a gospel partnership. There's a mutual reciprocal relationship between the teacher and the learner. Paul is saying there's a partnership between pastor, teachers, and learners. And Paul says the pastor's portion of the partnership is to impart spiritual wisdom, to teach the word to the learner. And the learner's portion of the partnership is to give generously to allow such a one to continue to devote his time to ministry, the teaching of God's word. Both parties are in this mutual gospel partnership whereby both parties are involved in giving and receiving. The teacher, he puts his time and energy into preparing the teaching of the Word and then gives it to the one who has taught the Word. And then the one who has taught the Word takes from all of his good things and he shares them with the one who teaches to allow him to continue to devote his time and energy to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So the partnership, it goes both ways. But here, Paul is commanding the one who is taught to share or contribute to the teacher. He commands them to partner with the teacher of their local church by giving to support that teacher. And the churches of Galatia had failed in their partnership of the gospel. And Paul had to encourage them to give. And this very common problem among churches where people do not give generously It is not a common problem in this church. Okay, so while Paul is writing them to encourage them, and while this is not an uncommon problem, this is not a problem here at our church. And when I was studying this, I was for a brief moment reluctant to teach on giving. But then I thought, what better time to teach on giving than right now when I am in a context of a church that is so gracious? I mean, there is no doubt some here who need to be encouraged to give to gospel partnership. But what a great passage to preach through. Because I get to look you all in the eyes and say, thank you. This is the most generous church I have ever been a part of. Josh mentioned next Sunday morning during equipping hour, we're going to be talking about the budget for next year. And it is a report of praise and thanks to God for your generosity is a praise for all of your faithful giving. And we read this earlier, but Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he was exhorting them to give and he was prefacing it with the example of the Macedonians. He said, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul used them as an example to exhort the Corinthians to give. And if I were to write to someone, another congregation, to exhort them to give, like Paul is here, the example that I would hold up to them is Grace Church. And so I get the privilege of teaching through this passage to commend you all on behalf of the elders for your faithfulness. Thank you. But go back to Philippians chapter 4. Right where we were in 4.15, I want to read a little bit further. God doesn't need your money. We here at Grace Church, we don't need your money. But we want you to steward it well and invest in gospel ministry for the rate of return that you will receive. I'm going to begin back in verse 15, but I'm going to continue on through 17. Paul says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The elders here at this church, we have the same attitude. We aren't seeking your gift, but we are seeking you to give in order that you receive the fruit that increases to your credit. That's an accounting term. You are investing your money in gospel ministry, and God is turning that into spiritual fruit that goes into your account. And oftentimes the reward will, will not be received until you are heaven side, but oh, the glory of that reward. But this investment is what Paul goes into next in Galatians to further encourage the Galatians to share all good things. If you want to go back to Galatians 6, Paul brings up the law of reaping what you sow. Here, Paul is marrying the concept of sowing and reaping to that of giving. He's connecting the two concepts. And if you think I'm a, a bit crazy, I was uh, skeptical as I read some commentaries on this. But let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And you sit there and look at Galatians chapter 6 and note the similarities when Paul exhorts the Corinthians to give. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 5-8, if you want to write that down. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. The point is this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the similarities of this passage in Galatians are striking. The aspect of giving with the concept of sowing and reaping. So back in Galatians, you guys are already there. We're still on this first point of share your goods with teachers. And in our context and culture, 
This is giving to your local church where your pastor is employed and gospel funds are distributed for gospel ministry. It worked a bit different back then, but the same principle. But then Paul goes on in verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Mocking God is when you think your actions will not produce the normal result. Like a sinner who gets away with something and they think that they've made it out, they are going to escape justice. God will not be mocked. Your justice will eventually come. Maybe not until the final judgment day, but God will not be mocked. In other words, you reap what you sow, even if you don't get it right away. To think you will reap something other than what you sow is deceiving yourself. And God will not be mocked. He will not be proven wrong. The law of you reap what you sow is as certain as the law of gravity. Paul says, don't think because you are riding in an airplane at 30,000 feet, the gravity doesn't matter. The plane is eventually coming down. And apparently the churches of Galatia had deceived themselves into thinking that their giving didn't matter. Perhaps this was a result of so much heresy creeping in, so many legalists creeping into the churches. Perhaps they weren't supporting the preachers of the true gospel, and they had to share the teaching load and work another job, and that made it easier for other, these heretics to creep in. That's one possibility. Perhaps the false teachers convinced the people not to give to these teachers, thus crippling the church of faithful teaching. Maybe those are the reasons, maybe not, but what Paul wants them to understand is that they must invest in the teachers who preach the word. And if they don't, they're going to reap the whirlwind. So Paul gives a lesson in specifics of sowing and reaping. In verse 8, the beginning of verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And in the Greek, Paul puts that word his own or himself grammatically at the center of the sentence. There's actually a in the Greek, a chiastic structure to this sentence where it has the verb at the beginning and the end, and then it has the two prepositional phrases into the flesh and from the flesh, and right at the center is the self. Paul's emphasis is that if the self is at the center of your sowing, you're going to reap corruption. If self is the center, at the center of what you promote and base your actions, you will reap corruption. If you are self-gratifying, self-indulging, you only spend your time, energy, and goods and money on yourself, well, you're going to reap destruction. And on top of that, there is no rate of return on investing in the flesh. This also harkens back to chapter 5 when Paul talks about the works of the flesh. You're sowing with the things you do, the things you say, the money you give. What you spend them on is an investment. Are you spending all your good things on fleshly desires, which is like investing money in a crashing stock, like maybe Sears or Kodak? You're going to go out and take your life savings and put it into that. Sowing to yourself will give you a rate of return of zero. For the person who thinks he's a Christian, 
but ever only invests in himself. This word for corruption means destruction. If your life is characterized by that list of the flesh in chapter 5, 17 to 20, if your life is characterized by that list, the works of the flesh, then you're sowing to the flesh and you will reap destruction and final judgment, not eternal life. If you find yourself characterized by that list, you need to repent. You need to believe and trust in Christ. Turn from your wicked ways, sowing in the flesh. And Paul is motivating us here by telling us to look at the end. What kind of rate of return are you going to get? And when you sow to the flesh, your rate of return is corruption and destruction. But he goes on, the second half of that in verse 8, he says, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the positive half of Paul's sowing analogy. The one who sows to the promotion of the Spirit, sowing to promote the fruit of the Spirit, will produce a harvest from the Spirit, which is eternal life. And eternal life, it does have the end in mind. But eternal life is not primarily about length of life. Rather, it is primarily about quality of life. And the quality of your life when you sow in the Spirit is drastically different. The quality of life when sowing in the Spirit is drastically different. And especially when you become a believer, you recognize this. Maybe not drastically better materially, but spiritually for certain. I mean, just look at the world around us. The mental anguish everyone is in with increasingly record numbers on drugs to help them cope with life, even prescribed drugs. Whereas on the other end, believers who are sowing for the promotion of the Spirit in their own life, they're just ecstatic to be saved. When you really think about this life, even if your life is really hard right now, even if we were being put to death for what we believe, enduring torture, we are escaping an eternal punishment in hell. Not to mention that we get to spend eternity with the good, glorious, gracious, wonderful, majestic God of the universe in full communion with Him. And so... Our quality of life is drastically different from the unbelievers. Sowing in the flesh reaps eternal life, eternal joy and thankfulness just to be saved. But Paul here is saying, make sure you pay the teachers of God's word who are going to teach you that word faithfully. And that, it's sowing in the spirit. Because as you sit under their teaching, the Spirit will be working in you, growing in you, and sanctifying you. One commentator, Max Anders, said of this passage, and I quote, Each of us, by our thoughts, attitudes, and actions, is constantly planting for a future reaping. Time may pass before the crop ripens, but the harvest is inevitable. Consider the harvest. In this application of the harvest principle, by giving, sowing to our spiritual leaders, we can expect to reap a spiritual harvest of abundant ministry. 
In contrast, the Christian who fails to support his spiritual leaders is sneering at God and can expect discipline. Such a selfish Christian spends his resources to gratify his own personal desires. In contrast, the Christian who shares his finances adds interest to the capital of eternal life. End quote. And I would add to that your support of those teachers produces the fruit of the Spirit in others. And that same word preached by those faithful preachers saves lost sinners. Your financial support is the greatest investment because it is sowing seeds that will grow eternally significant fruit. And if you are not giving, you are not being credited to your account in heaven. You are missing out. Just imagine for a moment, if you could go back 41 years and invest in Apple stock when it went public. If you did so and you invested $1,000, It would be worth nearly a half a million dollars today. Just a thousand dollars. If you had gone back then and you invested 10,000, it would be worth seven million dollars today. Again, referring back to 2 Corinthians 9 6, the point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. But beloved, give like you are investing in Apple back in 1980. Because you will reap a reward that is far better than the mere increase of physical funds. You'll reap the fruit of the Spirit now and eternal rewards in heaven. And imagine getting to heaven and seeing that all those faithful teachers that you supported allowed them to devote their life to teaching, resulting in so many people's salvation, that is the harvest you take part in, in heaven. And listen, your investment echoes down to the end of the ages. We are here because of the faithful men and women who supported Christ in his ministry the ones who supported the apostles in their ministry. And as we hope to raise up men here and send them out as ministers, the money you give exponentially increases as those men go out and train other men. It is sowing into something that will continue to produce fruit until Christ returns. So again, the elders... Here, we don't desire your gift. We desire you to invest and participate in the greatest harvest imaginable. But if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And Paul, he is going to use this concept of future reward to springboard into his next point. Point number two, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Verse Nine, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul has commanded the Galatians to give to those who faithfully teach them the word, and that they will reap what they sow. So we ought to give to the promotion of the Spirit, and not to the self, not to the flesh. And now he tells them to keep their eyes on the prize. 
And this verse, verse 9, it marks a change in subject. Though there is continuity in thought, it is a change of subject. There's a Greek conjunction that indicates it's a change. Paul also switches from the hypothetical third person to the first person, plural, let us, we and us. And Paul also uses a different word for good here. In verse 9, he uses a different word here than he did in verse 6. And here in this verse, there isn't actually a command from Paul. Here it's more like a petition. Like, may we not grow weary. And I don't necessarily like the ESV translation of grow weary because that makes it sound like a physical fatigue. Rather, the verb here refers to losing one's motivation to continue toward a desirable pattern of conduct, of activity. That is, to lose motivation, to lose enthusiasm or be discouraged. So it isn't that Paul is saying we should not grow physically tired of doing good, for we have no control over that, but that we should not become discouraged as we do good. And again, Paul uses similar language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which Travis just got done teaching through. But look at that with me. Flip back, another, back to the book of 2 Corinthians to chapter 4. It's clear in this passage, the way that they interpret it, what Paul means when he says, don't grow weary. And like I said, Travis just taught through this a great exposition of these passages on uh, remaining steadfast in gospel ministry. But 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and then skip down to verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Right there is that same word, we do not lose heart. Now go down to verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And here's that verb again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not only to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul has something similar in mind to the Galatians. He's telling them, don't lose heart, particularly here in giving to gospel ministry. For it is all for your sake, for the glory to come. 
In Galatians, Paul is saying, don't lose motivation in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And doing good here, as I mentioned, he uses a different word for good to indicate changing of subject, not giving, but rather just doing good. And he's pointing forward, just like Paul was in 2 Corinthians, to the eternal weight of glory awaiting us that is incomparable. So he's saying to the Corinthians, don't lose motivation to give. Don't lose motivation to do gospel ministry, gospel work. But here his focus is on the doing, the serving, the giving of time and energy to do good work. And here at this point, I must commend you all again for your service and diligence to do good for this church. So many of you serve faithfully week in and week out in so many ways. And so as one of the people here who regularly call on you to serve, thank you. I mean, there's so many things around this church that we've seen that's gotten done, the landscaping project outside, so many things that I've called on you for that you were willing to help and to promote gospel ministry by making this place look beautiful. So thank you. Again, I am commending you. And I'm going to press you on this point just to give you more motivation to excel still more because I want for you a greater harvest in heaven, a greater gift, a greater reward. The English translation, it makes this observable, but it's more obvious in the Greek verse 9, doing, has those I-N-G ending on there, it's a participle. And it could be an adverbial participle of purpose. That means that it is for the purpose of doing good works that we do not lose motivation. That is, Paul is saying, don't lose motivation because you have good works to do. Don't lose heart for the purpose of being able to do more good. Paul wants them to stay strong so they can continue to do good, so they can continue to build that investment and result in a magnificent harvest of incomparable glory if they don't give up. So I want to do the same thing here and just motivate you. Don't lose heart. Don't lose motivation. Keep up the steadfast pace that we are on. Paul here, he is saying, keep your eye on the prize so you don't lose motivation. When you lose motivation to do good gospel work, and you just want to do what you want to do? Maybe you want me time? Remember the harvest. Me time is not sowing to promote the Spirit. Me time doesn't have a rate of return beyond the immediate indulgence. And when we demand me time, we are essentially putting down the cross of Christ that we took up at salvation. Christ called us to die to ourself and to take up his cross. And when we demand our own way, we demand self-indulgence, we are saying, I'm putting this cross down, and I'm taking up me. Paul, he didn't want the Galatians 
And he didn't want you to waste your life on self. He wants you to stay motivated to do good gospel work. For in the end, you will reap a harvest that is incomparable. And as Americans, we tend to think, we tend to import our current living situation, our current culture into how we think the world should be and how God created it to be. And that means we tend to think that we were created to work five days a week, eight hours a day. And then when we get off, it's work and play. And on Saturdays, we do what we want. And then on Sundays, we spend the morning at church. But then the rest of the day, we do what we want. We have taken the framework of our country's work schedule, and we think that that is God's design for us. Rather, man created, or God created man to work six days, learning and teaching as we rise up and lay down. We devote the seventh day to worshiping him. God did not design us for a day of self-indulgence. And as Americans, we tend to think that we need that time, and even more so that we deserve it. Or that we should only be working four days a week so we can have three days off. And beloved, Paul is exhorting here that we not sow to the flesh in self-indulgence, but keep our motivation to doing good gospel work so that we can one day reap those rewards. I'm not saying resting and relaxing is wrong. All things in moderation. But our society tends to think that we all need and deserve 24 hours in a week to do whatever we want. And clearly the mental state of our country proves that the more me time that we get doesn't make us any healthier. It proves this verse true that we only reap corruption. So we should not lose our motivation to do good. The elders here, we're reading through Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and we're discussing it in elder meetings. And Carl Truman makes an interesting observation on the result of Darwin's theory of evolution on our society. Truman says, and I quote, by dispatching the idea of teleology from nature, That is essentially dispatching the notion of purpose from nature. That nature has no purpose. By dispatching the idea of teleology from nature, Darwin inevitably dispatches it from human beings too. And to take away teleology or purpose from the concept of humanity is to demand a fundamental revision of the understanding of who and what human beings are. Truman, in his book, he's trying to explain how the world got the way that it is right now. And he says, one of the reasons everyone is living for themselves, doing whatever they want to do, changing themselves, be whatever they want to be, is because they have grown up, they've totally lost a sense of purpose beyond themselves. They've grown up in a world that has taught them, you are the center of the universe. There is no purpose beyond yourself as a result of Darwin dispatching that idea of purpose from nature. And as Christians, this is the same world that we grew up in, that we are immersed in. And we need to understand that the same notion to find purpose in ourselves and in our own desires 
This is the water we drink, the air we, ble- the air we breathe in our culture. We are not unaffected by this. And that is to say, while most of us here would probably deny the theory of evolution, we all still live like practical evolutionists when we demand me time, that I am at the center of my purpose. The purpose we are so often living for is ourselves. The end to which we live our week is the weekend when our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We live to get to the end of the day, the end of the week, so we can do what we want. And we end up living out Darwin's theory of evolution, though we deny it on the face. And beloved, we have such a higher purpose than to live for the end of the day or the end of the week. We are called to live every moment as an act of worship to God to glorify God. Moms, whether that is changing diapers, dads punching keys on a keyboard, studying, building fences, we do it all for the purpose of glorifying God and worshiping Him. When you need motivation to keep doing those things, just remember who sees them. I mean, we got a lot of tradesmen in here. Who sees those straight pipes in those walls when they're all done and covered up? Or straight wires? God sees. We keep those things straight and in order because that's glorifying to God. Moms, who sees all the diapers you change, all the things you have to clean up, being extra careful to clean off your kids when they make a mess of themselves, often a thankless job. Who sees that? God does. We do all those things as an act of worship to God, to glorify Him. That's our purpose. That's our end, not ourselves. We're to steward our time well, to feed our families, take care of them as faithful men. But then we are to devote our life to serving the Lord first in our homes, then in our church, sowing to the Spirit in gospel ministry. Wives, moms, especially moms who have a bunch of toddlers running around the house, you have to steward the little free time that you do get. You have to steward that well. Dads, when you come home from work, it's not unplug and sit down on the couch. We have a life to steward well. Single folks, you are in a unique position to devote yourself, your time and your energy and your funds to gospel ministry. Don't squander these days of singleness to me time. Build that investment in eternal glory. Because look, I know how easy it is to come home Or the moment you have a break with the kids and just pick up your phone and zone out on something. And if you don't have a spouse or kids at home to even keep you somewhat accountable, it's very easy to do that. But just remember, as you do that, you will get a rate of return of zero on that time. Paul commends or challenges the Galatians. He says, you have good works to do. Don't lose motivation. Remember the harvest. You were called to a higher purpose. And Jesus put it this way. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So look up from your distractions, from the time that you do waste, 
Look up and see that the fields are white for harvest. There is always gospel work to be done. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, and I quote, We need to look ahead, to anticipate, to look forward to the eternal glories gleaming afar. The Christian life is a tasting of the first fruits of that great harvest which is to come. Go on with your task, whatever your feelings. Keep on with your work. God will give the increase. He will send the rain of his gracious mercies as we need it, and there will be an abundant harvest. Look forward to it. Ye shall reap. End quote. He says, whatever you feel, keep on with your work. Don't be driven by your feelings, but be driven by the reality of your future reward. Another commentator, Lenski, puts it this way, and I quote, when the blessed harvest season arrives, we shall wonder why we ever thought of getting tired and of relaxing. And then he says, to wait a hundred times longer will then seem to us no reason at all for thinking of tiring. That is to say, when we picture ourselves there receiving our harvest, if we had to wait a hundred lifetimes longer to receive it, we would still not think of tiring. Go to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just to make one more brief point on this before we move on. 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul is motivating the Corinthians not to worry about necessarily which teacher they're following or brag about specific teachers, but pointing them to the building of Christ's church universally. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, this is how he encourages them. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul's point to the Galatians is the same. You will one day reap a reward or a payment for all of your work. Work as so to produce something that lasts through fire. We as Christians, we must steward our lives in light of this passage. We must steward our lives in light of the law of sowing and reaping. We must get in the habit of thinking eternally. And that means when we have a decision to make, we make the habit of stopping and imagining ourselves at that judgment where our work is being put into the fire. And we think, I have the option to do this or that. I have the freedom in Christ to do this or that. But what will glorify God most in the end? I can do this or that in the freedom of Christ. But my purpose is to work towards eternal things, which is going to invest in eternal things. Will this come out of the fire or will that come out of the fire? That's what being eternally minded means. Constantly thinking in light of eternity. Put yourself there at the fire. Now what do you want to do more? So Paul says in this section, keep your eyes on the prize. Don't grow weary because there are good works to be done. Don't grow weary because you've got investment to make. 
that will produce a glorious harvest beyond compare. But with limited time and energy and resources, how do you narrow your scope of doing good? And that's Paul's third point here. Point number three, prefer your family of the faith. Prefer your family of the faith. And I'm going to read Galatians 6.10. Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the first point was on sharing goods, meaning treasures. The second point was on doing good. And Paul used two different words for good to distinguish his topics. But now he takes the idea of doing from the second point, that word for good in the verse 9, or rather, sorry, the doing from verse 9, and the word for good from verse 6. So he's kind of putting these together now. He's talking about giving and doing in these passages. Serve and give to everyone, he says. But then he gives qualifications. Because he doesn't intend, nor does he want us to think, that he means that we should go out and serve and give to everyone without qualification. We don't forsake wisdom at Paul's command here. Giving to people begging on the street corner, on the street corner of a restaurant, no less, with the now hiring sign in the window behind them. So many places are hiring on the spot. You're not doing that person any good giving giving God's funds that he has given you to steward. That's not wise. That's not what Paul is talking about here. We don't just serve and give our money to anyone or anything without qualification. Paul first says that we do good to everyone as we have opportunity. And this word for opportunity here is the same word that Paul used in verse 9. If you look back at verse 9 in the ESV, it says, in due season. It's the same word. And I think Paul used the same word in both places to restrict our service and giving even more. How so? Well, by using that same word, he's tying it to the harvest. Paul is saying that you should do good and give to everyone when it is going to promote the harvest, when it is going to promote the Spirit and add to the harvest. Is giving to the homeless man promoting the Spirit or the flesh? Just handing him money is certainly going to promote his flesh. An opportunity to serve or give that is sowing to the flesh is not the opportunity that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about opportunities to serve and give that will increase the harvest, that will promote the gospel. Taking the opportunity to go out with the red team, for instance, and evangelize, evangelize that same homeless guy maybe, or anyone else for that matter, that is taking the opportunity you have to do good. Maybe even asking the homeless man if you buy him lunch, if he'll listen to you share the gospel would be a possible opportunity to advance the kingdom. So Paul is restricting our opportunity to give and to serve to those that are going to advance the kingdom. I mean, as Americans, we have opportunity to give to so many things. The commercials that pop up with the cute little kitties on them. 
Save the whales in another country. Those are not the opportunities that Paul is talking about here. With every opportunity to do good by serving or giving out there in the world, we need to stop and ask if there is any eternal significance and reward and we manage our lives accordingly. We're to do good to everyone as we have opportunity of eternal significance. We must use wisdom. But there's another qualifier in doing good, and that is preferring the household of faith. Todd Wilson, he put it this way, he said, and I quote, As we live generously and do good, we ought to continue to prioritize the local church. Yes, to do good to everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, but as Paul is concerned to point out, Christians ought to do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The local church, he continues on, must be our top priority. Why? Because it is our primary family. It is, the apostle says, the household of faith. It is where we find identity and security, receive nurture and nourishment, get encouragement and support, benefit from teaching and training, modeling and mentoring, disciple and discipleship. The local church is our spiritual home. And those who gather week by week, biblically speaking, are our true brothers and sisters. So that means you don't do good by giving and serving. You do good by giving and serving your local church with top priority. If there is a need at your local church, which you could fulfill, that means that you prioritize that monetarily, time, energy, whatever. You prioritize that over serving somewhere else and doing something else. And why? Because this, the membership of Grace Church here, is our closest family. Just like you can't neglect your husband or your wife or your kids to go serve somewhere else, Paul says to put something above the local church would be to do the same thing. Giving and serving outside the local church, parachurch ministries, that grace to you and founders are all good and godly things, but you must first commit yourself to the local church. And I want to end by reminding you of the commitments you made to this church in public affirmation. As you were standing up here when you became a member and you were making public affirmations, Travis or one of the other pastors asked you this, do you agree as a faithful steward of Jesus Christ to minister to this local body of believers by attending regularly, praying faithfully, serving cheerfully, and giving sacrificially of your love, talents, time, money, and resources? And then you responded as, I will or I do agree. This that I just read, is what it means to do good to the household of faith. And as I mentioned, this church is a model in many of these things. But for the sake of our eternal reward, let us excel still more, beloved. Let us regularly picture ourselves on that day receiving our reward of what stands the fire. And imagine hearing the words of Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. And then the greatest reward imaginable, enter into the joy of your master. Remember that as you struggled to die to yourself, those words of Jesus, remember 
the eternal reward, reward waiting for you. Place yourself there and regularly give your present self advice from your future self that you know is awaiting. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, none of us here, steward our time, money, energy, and resources perfectly. All of us can grow in this area of being eternally minded, keeping our eyes on the prize, giving to the right things in time and in money, giving our energy to the right things. May you give us clarity in our lives as to what has eternal significance and what doesn't. And may you convict us as we spend time on fleshly things that have no reward. May your spirit convict us and remind us of your words to motivate us, to keep on track, to continue to devote ourselves to giving and doing your work here, to promoting gospel ministry, knowing that our gifts now, our service now, will have echoing effects effects down throughout the end of the ages that we have no way of knowing the magnitude of them. We ask, Lord, that you motivate us to excel still more. In Jesus' name, amen.